So you, if you can keep your eyes closed. If your eyes were closed or if your eyes are open, you can, I'd invite you to close them. And I want you to picture the perfect church. Maybe our church, maybe a few more people. Imagine a church, there's no kids making any noise, just calm, just quiet all the time. We can meet as long as we'd like and talk to one another as adults with none of the demands of having kids. No one in the church is struggling in their marriage. No single person is deeply disappointed that they're not married. No confusion about our identities or anything like that. There's no porn addictions, no drug addictions, no alcohol abuse. Everyone is rested. No one's overworked or too busy. There's no real major doubts about faith. No one's struggling in their faith. Everyone believes in Jesus, or at least they say they do. No questions. No real trauma from the past impacting how people relate today. Keep your eyes closed as you imagine this perfect church. No disruptive family of origin issues impacting us today. Keep imagining that church. Everyone smiles and everyone looks great. How's it feel? Are you still a part of the church? Is there anyone left in the church? Do the people that are left even need Jesus? Okay, keep your eyes closed. So we're going to imagine a seemingly perfect church. Now, there's some kids in this church, but they're seen and not heard. They're quiet. They're just sitting by their parents' sides, perfectly still. No one brings up their marriage issues or their deep disappointments in singleness. No one talks about their identity confusion. Certainly no one broaches the subject of porn or drug abuse or alcohol abuse. Everyone greets one another with a smile. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Everyone's response, great or better than I deserve. No expressed concerns about the claims of Christ. Doubts are left at home. We've all moved on past our trauma and family of origin issues quickly because Jesus has given us victory, right? Everyone smiles. Everyone looks great. How does that feel? Does it feel like church as it should be? Is that our experience of church? Is that how we come into church? So let's keep our eyes closed here. So we've imagined perfect church. We've imagined seemingly perfect church. Now let's imagine a healthy church. All ages, life stages, kids with adults. Kids aren't that quiet, though. Sometimes they make a little noise. People feel freedom to bring up their marriage issues, at least, at least with those who can be trusted within the church. Not everyone, but they have some people that they can talk about. People talk about their deep disappointment in their singleness at times. People share about their confusion about their identity. 
It's commonplace for men and women to talk about their battles with porn addiction, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, uh, workaholism, all sorts of isms that are plaguing us. People feel like they can come and they can talk about those things. People greet each other, say, how are you doing? And sometimes we say, hey, I'm okay. I just don't want to talk about it. And you follow up later with a text or a phone call. Sometimes people are doing great and they share that and we celebrate that. It's awesome. But there's a lot of follow-up conversations after the central gathering time, text messages, messenger messages, Marco Polo's, group me messages, people are following up. People express their concerns about their, the claims of Christ and they bring their doubts to the table and that's okay. People acknowledge their trauma from the past and we together try to chart a course towards healing and growth. There's an awareness that The homes we grew up in, whether they looked great or they looked chaotic, deeply impact us both for good and for negative, and that's okay, and we can together chart a course to work towards honoring our fathers and mothers and working through these family issues. Not everyone smiles all the time, but we look for the smiles and, and we trust that they're genuine, or at least we're working towards genuine smiles. Everyone still looks great, but not necessarily great that would make it into a magazine or a music video, but everyone looks great. And we understand that each person is made in the image of God and that it is messy and it is beautiful. So how does that feel? Does that feel like church as it should be or maybe as it could be? A church moving towards healthy growth will be messy. What you see is not always what you get. But becoming a church that produces healthy fruit takes a full stable of oxen yoked to Christ, but the manger is going to get messy. Lord, thanks for our time this morning. I pray that you would help our church to move towards becoming a healthy church that produces fruit, that has a full stable of oxen yoked to Christ, that's okay with the mess because we understand the abundant crops that are to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can open your eyes if you'd like. So there's a proverb. The proverbs are these wise sayings. It's not, it doesn't mean that these things are promises that will always hold true, but they're reflections on life that are genuinely or generally true. So there's this proverb in uh, chapter 14, verse 4. It basically says this, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Doesn't that look nice? Doesn't that look refreshing? There's no mess. There's no oxen either. The proverb goes on, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. And by implication, abundant crops come by the mess of the ox. So this proverb, the song uh, Solomon who wrote the Proverbs, uh, presumably, he's not just talking about a clean versus a messy manger 
a foal versus an empty stable. He's talking about life. This is genuinely true. To produce abundant crops is going to take a lot of oxen and it's going to take a lot of mess. Think about Christ himself. Even as, a, as an infant, he was placed in a manger. And I, I believe that was probably a pretty messy space for him to be in. You know, he was well acquainted to the oxen and the sheep and the animals. I mean, he's the one who created all them, but then condescended, came down from the right hand of the Father, submitted himself, took on flesh, and was laid in a messy manger. But also as he grew up and as he matured, uh, his method of ministry was actually quite messy. Think about Christ. Think about his ministry. He chose a rough group of guys to mentor for three years. Fishermen, tax collectors, you know, these types of guys. These are roughneck guys. They were messy. They jockeyed for position. They were slow to get it. They made a mess everywhere they went. Jesus elevated women in his ministry. Not just any women. Women who had faced a lot of trauma and had not walked in the way of purity. And that was pretty messy. Just imagine that mix of those rough and tumble guys and, and those women that he's elevating into his, his stable of oxen. Jesus made a mess of, uh, in places of worship. Think about his interactions in the temple. I mean, he literally at times would make a mess overthrowing tables and, and disrupting the status quo. He made a mess everywhere he went. And late in his ministry, it, it, it looked like uh, to our uh, worldly eyes that things took a major turn for the worse. His ministry actually grew smaller the longer he went on in his ministry. And yet, at the end, he said in his prayer, John 17, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Think about that. Jesus, if you looked at his ministry, these, these guys, you know, who at the cross, all of them fled, this rough and tumble group, messy ministry, limited success, things getting actually smaller rather than larger, and yet he was able to say to the Father, I have accomplished what you sent me to do. It didn't look right to worldly eyes. But yet that was the way of Christ, the way of the messy manger. Yeah, and by the time he, he uh, was at the cross, everyone had left him, deserted him, and left him to hang and die all alone. And many of the people he had ministered to those uh, years leading up to his death were the ones who crucified him, were there cheering on his death. So Jesus' ministry was, was actually very, very messy. This is a book that we, uh, when we started this, this church uh, three years ago, it's, it's called The Neighboring Church. It was a big impact for us, uh, the idea of neighboring. Well, in that book, The Neighboring Church by Rick Rousseau and Brian Mavis, they make this comment. The church began as a fellowship of men and women centered on Jesus. And if, if you think it, about Jesus' life and then his resurrection and when the spirit descended, the early church, it wasn't all cleaned up, right? It was still a very messy, ragtag group of folks. 
but centered on the person of Jesus Christ. But then it went to Greece and became a philosophy. And then the church went to Rome and became an institution. It went to Europe and became a culture. And finally, it came to America and became an enterprise. So if we look back through history and we see so many expressions of the church, this thing that Jesus founded with these messy group of men and women, man, it, it's taken on a lot of expressions that look really nothing like what Christ surely had in mind. So there's this, this uh, paradigm that we like to talk about. We could call it the institutional paradigm of the church, where it bigger and seemingly more beautiful is better. So in this paradigm, we have God at the top, right? The, the, God the Father. And then we have the clergy, the, the paid professional, the head guy, the lead guy, the, the pope, the CEO of the, the church, however you want to call him. And then we have people who come around uh, hearing from this, this one guy, right? And everyone comes in, they follow the rules and regulations, they, they wear their Sunday best, they show up, they take in a great message, they write their checks, they go home, everything looks good and it feels good and it grows, this works. Over time, you add numbers to it, more and more people, everyone's staying in line, Don't those rows just look nice? Just refreshing? Sometimes I start cleaning the house just because I'll have a little bit of anxiety. And if I can just clean something and just look at how clean it is and how beautiful it is, I feel better. So this we might call is the traditional model, the institutional model. You have the paid professionals who do the work and everyone just falls in line and pay the bills and it looks great. It feels great, but are people connected to Christ? Are people connected to one another? Is this what Jesus had in mind when he mentored these men and women for those three years? Uh, this book that we're going to walk through together. Anyone who wants to join us, this is kind of wired and geared towards leaders, but you are more than welcome to join us. And who knows, you may find yourself emerging as a leader, even within our church. Lord knows we need leaders, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So this is Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. So we're going to start May 18th, 6.30 to 7.30. First one is at Long's Park. Bring the kids. It's going to be great. We're going to dive in and seek to move from shallow Christianity to deep transformation. That's the subtitle. So in this book, he says, and he's describing success as we look at it, as especially in the West, but human nature, this is how we perceive what success is. He says, for most of us, success is an, uh, it is an absolute value that bigger is always better. And I would throw in here, bigger and more seemingly beautiful is always better. We want bigger bank accounts, bigger influence, bigger social media platforms, bigger homes. And we could look at stats on all these things and how people have sought bigger and more beautiful homes here in America. Bigger budgets, bigger profits, bigger staffs, 
bigger churches. And this plays out in so many areas in our culture. I mean, even the chickens that we eat, we want them to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is a comparison of the size of chickens that, that go to, to slaughter from 1957 up to 2005. And I don't know how big they are now, but used to be about two pounds. Now they're about 9.25 pounds. That's not natural. That's not, that's not, that's not good for the chicken and it's not good for the consumer. It's good for big business. When you see that huge chicken breast, it's awesome. But that's taken a lot of processing and, and uh, inputs to make that thing happen. And so if you want to look into it, you can read about all the, the health problems facing our poor chickens today because of our metric that bigger is always better. It's more profitable. Overworked lungs, stressed heart, Weak legs, achy joints, our poor chickens, right? This plays out even in the way we treat our own bodies. Now, I'll go to an extreme because body augmentation is a thing in our culture. So this guy right here, uh, what's his name here? Romario dos Santos Alves. So this is a, I read a, a story, 2015 New York Post article. And I remember reading about this guy, you know, six years ago. Um, maybe that's a little bit better. So he became addicted to using synthetic oils and painkillers to inject into his muscles to make them look bigger than they were. Now he's an extreme case. But this is, com this is commonplace amongst bodybuilders to have the impression of something being bigger and seemingly more beautiful. And this isn't the only type of body augmentation that exists in our culture where the world is telling us bigger is better and seemingly more beautiful. This guy, as he reflected on it, he essentially became addicted to this. I mean, addicted to this. And so this is an extreme case. The point is, are we addicted to bigger and seemingly more beautiful? He actually uh, almost had to amputate his arms. It got so out of control. And, and when I was looking, uh, as I got this photo, I had a gag reflex. If you know me well, I kind of have a gag. But just the thought of this guy's obsession with these bigger muscles, it's just, it's not natural. It's not good. It's kind of gross. So he's cutting corners to get somewhere, but actually he becomes so uh, del delusional that the end product isn't, doesn't even, isn't even what he ever wanted in the first place. And there's all sorts of reasons that someone like him or others would, would fall into this type of addiction, some sort of identity issues. I mean, I think if we really think about it, we get it. We, we want bigger and we want more beautiful. Scazzaro goes on, can you imagine a business, a government agency, a nonprofit that doesn't just try to grow and increase its reach? The logic is simple. If you're not getting bigger, you're failing and potentially on your way to extinction. So in the book that we're going to study, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Scazzaro, the way he answers the question of what is success in the church is this. 
Success, according to scripture, the way of Jesus is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way, according to his timetable. We plant, we water, that's our role. God causes growth in his time. Says what this means is that it is possible for a ministry or organization to be growing numerically and yet actually failing. And we have example after example in the news where we have the lead person who something happens and there's a failure and then the whole thing falls apart. So we need things to grow in a healthy way, not just bigger and better quickly. So that your ministry, actually, numbers may be declining and yet actually be succeeding. Maybe there's a pruning that's taking place for future health and future growth. And lastly, he says, all numerical markers, increased attendance, bigger, better programs, larger budget. Now, those are important things that we need to talk about them as a church and as a leadership team, but they all must take a back seat to listening to Jesus, the one whose ministry method was that of the messy manger. Jesus calls us to abide and abound in him. What this abiding and abounding looks like will differ depending on our unique leadership callings. So success is actually abiding, yoking up to Christ and allowing him to deal with the long-term growth. So this is a thing in our culture. We, we, I think we understand that we're obsessed with bigger is better. Bigger budgets, uh, more people showing up, whether it's a sports team, a church, wherever it is, we get that. But this was an issue back then and there too. The Pharisees, they were obsessed with the seemingly beautiful while neglecting the interior life. Jesus said to them, His strongest words were not for the irreligious people, the messy people. They were for the people that looked good on the outside. He said, you blind Pharisee, you've got to clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they looked good on the exterior, but within, they were full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So they could gather a crowd, they could gain a following, but on the inside, it was not vibrant, it was not alive, it was not growing and thriving, it was fabricated. So outwardly, they appeared righteous to others, but within, they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, bigger and seemingly more beautiful is not always better. We have this uh, tall grass gardening group me, and I'm excited. Uh, I mean, Maris is going to start some gardening at our house. I'll probably get out there a little bit with her because she likes that. But I really am looking forward to the produce that will be produced from our church family. I love when people bring that little plastic bag full of vegetables from the garden. You know what I'm talking about? And you see that and you, you dig in there. Those vegetables, they don't look good. They're kind of small when you compare them to the grocery store, right, where there's huge tomatoes and they all look exactly the same and all the cucumbers look exactly the same. The stuff coming out of naturally grown gardens, it doesn't look that good. I think I have a... 
I couldn't even find a good image of the type of garden bag I'm talking about, where the, the tomatoes have kind of burst and they've stitched themselves together and the, the, uh, the squash and zucchini looks all sorts of crazy. Cucumbers still with dirt on them. But you know that that stuff is healthier, better for you, probably going to taste better, especially if your palate has been refined to eat that which is natural and good rather than what you might get at the grocery store. So we have a lot of shifting that we need to do over and against what our culture feeds us. So the New Testament model, we might call it the organic paradigm or for today's purposes, the messy manger model. Here we have Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And here we have some people trying to figure out how to follow Christ, trying to figure out how to abide in Christ. They're not really put together. We're not all in straight lines. It, it looks a little bit messy. How are they all related to one another? It's a, it's a messy situation. This is everybody. The, the, the New Testament teaches us that everybody who is a part of the church connected to Christ, our ministers, we all have a job to do. Um, we all have work to do. Ephesians 1.13 says, if when you believe in Christ, um, when you believe in the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So everyone has direct access to God. Everyone is vibrant, is alive. And there's a teaching in 1 Peter that everyone is the royal priesthood. We are all representatives of God to our culture and to one another um, as we live out the gospel together. I've gotten some Kansas Leadership Center coaching this year, uh, which has been great, but my coach, her name is Mildred Edwards. Uh, when we were doing some coaching a, a month ago, she said, we are all responsible for growing this flock. Because a lot of what I'm talking about with her is, this is hard to get through this pandemic with our, our church plant and I'm wearing a lot of hats, but people need to know we are all responsible for growing the flock. We are all gardeners. We all have good works to walk in. We are all essential workers in the church. But in the midst of all of these people, everyone being ministers, leaders do emerge. So it's not just total chaos without any earthly leadership. Leaders do emerge out of the midst of the ministers. And so sometimes when, when people walk in or they're, they're part of a small group uh, or they come into the church and they can't, they, they're, they're vitally connected to another person and the main person following up with them is whoever brought them and it's, it's not just me, that's a good thing. We all need to connect with one another. We got a lot of stories of messy growth in the life of our church and also the church that we came out of. Well, I was looking back on this, just thinking about this, and many of you in here have been a part of life groups where it got a little crazy, it got chaotic. We're meeting in a home, we're bursting at the seams. There's a lot of people are bringing their mental health issues, their marriage issues, their infertility issues. We're trying to figure it out as we go, and yet some of the best ministry came out of those seemingly chaotic years. We're all trying to figure it out together. 
And as a church here in Manhattan, Kansas, we get to welcome a lot of people and we get to say goodbye to a lot of people. So sometimes we don't even get to see the fruit of our labors. We have oxen in a stable trying to do ministry, trying to live out the one another's and then people they're invested in, they're poured into, and then they move, whether they're uh, students or soldiers or young professionals. One of the most encouraging phone calls I got was, was from a friend, Aaron Momber. And some of you guys might know him. Um, he was in our life group and he, and he was a soldier and, and we essentially got him at a low point in his life. And we got to hear about his story. And I won't go into details there, but it was very, very difficult. And so he spent I, three or four years with us, pretty hit and miss. He wasn't the guy who emerged and led the life group or led top guys group or any of that stuff. But yet a couple years after he left, he called me and he said, Ben, I wish you could see me now. He had gotten married. God was doing an amazing work. They were invested in their church. It, it was awesome. He calls me to check in on me and see how I'm doing and share how he's doing. But we didn't get to see that. We got to do a lot of the messy ministry, rub shoulders with him. We didn't really get to see the fruit of our labors there, but we can hear about it. And there's others like him who don't make the phone call. He just happened to make the phone call. So we're okay with that mess. We want that mess. We, we just want life to occur. We want to figure it out as we go. So church, when, when we're doing church right, it is going to be messy. Otherwise, we don't even need the, the, the commands of the New Testament. Paul has given us all these one another commands. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Overlook offense. All of these things. They presume that things are going to get messy relationally, where, where I need a space where, where forgiveness is functioning and occurring, where I've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, and then I can work through things with, with Dave, with Bill, with Ron, with others. And it's messy, but it's beautiful in the way God counts beauty. So our passage again, as we... Think about this, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Now, I learned a lot about oxen just researching this, but oxen are essentially just a, a cow, a bovine who's been trained. So they're, they're a bovine with an education, a discipled beast of burden. They're usually yoked in pairs. So for small tasks, you can have one ox, they can do fine. But for bigger tasks, you need to yoke up two oxen for heavier work. Sometimes ox, yoke of oxen will get to nine or even ten pairs, depending on the nature of the work. The yoke makes independence absolutely impossible. So if we're really going to get work done, we've got to yoke to one another to, to, to move the ball forward. Slow, faithful plodding. Horses are much faster, but they scare easily, they're jumpy, and they can't pull as much over time. So the, the imagery we have in Scripture here of doing the work is that of a yoke of oxen. So typically you'd have a young ox be trained by an older, stronger oxen. 
So they would yoke up, they would be discipled essentially how to carry the heavy load. And if they're going in, in separate directions, you know, the work's not going to be done. It, it really starts to click when the young oxen is right in lockstep with that older, more mature oxen. So some of the reading I've, I've done, and I haven't researched it too much, but a trained ox can pull 5,000 pounds. An untrained oxen can tr- pull 2,000 pounds. But when you yoke them together, they can pull 10,000 pounds and once that, that uh, young oxen grows and matures in this train, they can pull 15,000 pounds. So this imagery is really, really good. There's not fast movement. It is slow, hard, heavy lifting. But the good news is that Christ, not only was he born and, and laid in a messy manger and, and did this messy ministry, but he himself bore the weight of the yoke of the cross on our behalf. He did the heavy lifting. So we know that we can do more when we are yoked to Christ than we can ever do on our own. In fact, this is Jesus' invitation to us. Maybe even this morning, um, some of us have been trying to carry a heavy load whether in our families or in our church or just in life. And we feel weary, we feel exhausted. But Christ invites us to come to him if we're weary and heavy laden and he will give us rest. He invites us to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him. To picture Christ as that more mature, strong oxen inviting you to yoke up with him. And he is gentle, he is lowly in heart, and in him we will find rest for our souls. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So the, the antidote to exhaustion isn't just to lay down the burden, but it's to place it on the shoulders of Christ and to take up his yoke. That's where we find rest. That's what we want is a a full stable of oxen making a mess, willing to embrace that mess, but yoking to Christ. So I want to close our time um, maybe stretching our bandwidth a little. I want to do a little bit of imaginative prayer. You might call it listening prayer. Uh, At Guy's Group on Tuesday, Dylan walked us through an activity uh, where we listen to Christ. And he tried to stretch the guy, so we took about four minutes. He called it imaginative prayer. You might call this listening prayer. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, get comfortable. Maybe make a decision to lean into this listening prayer time together just to try it, to see what might happen, to see if if you might connect with Christ this morning in a meaningful way. So close your eyes, and kids can do this too, close your eyes and listen to Jesus' words to you. This is from Matthew 11, 28, the, the inspired word of God where Christ spoke in real time to a real group of people, and he speaks to you this morning, 2021. Christ says, come to me, 
all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, and maybe fill in your name, Jesus saying, come to me. If your labor has caused weariness, I long to give you rest. So what burden do you carry even this morning that Jesus is asking you to place on his shoulders? What burden are you carrying that is crushing you with its weight that Jesus is saying, hey, place this burden on my shoulders? Maybe you need to look at Christ and, and ask him, Jesus, what burden do I need to lay on your shoulders or set aside altogether? Now think about what mess in your life is Jesus telling you to not worry about cleaning up right now? You're like, but Jesus, I have to clean this part up. I got to get to this. And Jesus is saying, just let that go. That mess is okay for now. How does it feel when Jesus says to you, when he looks you in your eyes, with your eyes closed, but what you're picturing in your mind, and Jesus looks at you and says, I will give you rest. Do you believe him? What does his face look like when he's talking to you? Does he look impatient with you, frustrated with you, angry with you, that you haven't figured it out, that you haven't cleaned things up? Or does he look kind and caring and gentle and patient. Continue to listen to Jesus speak these words to you. He says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest, not just for your body, but for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, I'd invite you to keep it with your eyes closed. If you can do this, just stand up where you're at and, and keep your eyes closed. And if you, if you want to stay seated, that's fine too. I want to keep stretching us a little so you, you have Christ there saying these things to you. Now when he says, take my yoke upon you, what does it feel like for Jesus to gently place his yoke on your shoulders? What's it feel like for him to make sure that the, the yoke is, is set properly, it's comfortable, and it's on your shoulders. 
When Jesus says, learn from me, what is it that he wants you to learn from him today? How does Jesus want to disciple you this morning? So can you feel the easy yoke of Jesus? You're going to get work done. Things are going to happen, but Jesus is going to do the heavy lifting. All you have to do is be in step with him. He is gentle. He is lowly in heart. Can you feel the lightness of the burden that he's asking you to carry? So I'd invite you to continue to spend these moments with Jesus, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. Just take a couple couple more minutes. Just even in your own heart and mind to interact with Christ the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. This teaching was recorded at Tallgrass Community Church. Because God first loved us, we exist to love God and love our neighbors. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church.